you know, skiing needs to be affordable. When you think back in the days when we started to learn to ski, it was not super expensive. And Ragged is a family-oriented resort along with Wisp and Wintergreen and Mount Washington and Powderhorn. They're, they're small properties that you want to make sure that it's affordable for the people to come and enjoy the sport. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Back to one of my favorite ski states today, New Hampshire. But before we get into Ragged Mountain, you know I have to remind you to go to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The newsletter is the heart of the storm. The podcast is just a small part of it. There's an article on stormskiing.com with a full breakdown of Ragged and a whole bunch of background context as well. And I am analyzing the world of lift surf skiing year round in the Storm Skiing newsletter. Earlier this week, I put out a complete breakdown of the three new IndyPass partners the second they were live. And the Storm is usually among the first to carry these stories nationally. I work with all the folks who run these past coalitions to make sure I have this information ahead of time and I can break it all down for you the second it is live. If you want even more frequent updates, you can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. All right, let's talk about Mountain Gazette. Have you subscribed yet? If not, why not? I'm telling you, having this thing on your coffee table is going to change your whole day. Let me tell you about Mountain Gazette 197, which is heading to the printer in the coming weeks. The spring 2022 issue is going to be stuffed with the kinds of picks and stories you will not find anywhere else. Here's what I mean. The new issue features a stunning photo gallery of outdoor culture in Kiev, Ukraine before the Russian invasion. There's a story about mountain town soccer prospects and a photo gallery by the one and only Jimmy Chin. Yes, that's right. The Oscar Award winner makes his Mountain Gazette debut in issue 197. Plus, you will find long-form stories about skiing, the Jackson Hole backcountry, biking, whitewater rafting, climbing, and much more. If you think print is dead, you are wrong. The only way to reserve a copy is to subscribe. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 84, Eric Barnes, General Manager of Ragged Mountain, New Hampshire. All right, New England, listen up. If you're tired of the crowds, if you like a huge terrain variety, if you like high-speed lifts, if you want a place that's right off the interstate, well, you are in luck because there's Ragged Mountain hiding in plain sight. 1,200 feet of vert, a high-speed six-pack, and a high-speed quad, an absolute killer glade network right there between I-93 and I-89, pretty much no other skiers, and oh, by the way, one of the cheapest season passes in New England. Oh, you've never heard of it? Join the club. Look, New England has enough ski areas that there are still a couple underutilized gems out there. This is one of them. 
Let's get it utilized. Let's go. My guest today has been the general manager of Ragged Mountain, New Hampshire since last October. Ragged has 57 trails on 250 acres across two peaks on a 1,250 foot vertical drop. The mountain is one of five ski resorts owned and operated by Pacific Resorts Group. Prior to taking the top job at Ragged, he spent 33 years at Mount Snow, where he held positions as ski school instructor and director, director of skiing services, director of resort operations, and in his final three years, vice president and general manager. Eric Barnes is my guest. Eric Welcome to the storm. So glad to have you here to talk some Ragged Mountain today. Stuart, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So first of all, Eric, how did the 2021 to 22 ski season go at Ragged Mountain? So ski season was pretty good this year. We had, we did a nice job. I think uh, snowmaking and with the weather we had was a little tough, but Ragged's been known for getting through the tough seasons. And, and um, I think our snowmaking and our grooming, the guys do a great job. So I was I was pleased with with how we came out the other side, um, even with the weather that we had. You know, watching from a distance, Eric, it seemed like you just drew the short straw on a bunch of storms, and it, it looked. And I have you can never be certain with these things watching from two hundred miles away, but it kind of looked like you were just south of that rain snow line, and kind of got skunked on some of these foot plus storms. They might have gotten higher up in the whites. Yeah, we did. Uh, it was. The rain, snow, freezing ice was right on top of us. We got a couple of storms that were okay, but the, there was a couple of big ones that we, we just missed, and it was it was depressing because we were out there banging our chairs off with, with ice on them. So it's, it just makes for a very long day. And how was the Glade skiing this year? We'll talk about your Glade network soon, which is really fantastic, and I think a lot of folks don't know about it, but were you able to get the Glades live this season for a considerable stretch? Uh, we did get them live. There wasn't a ton of coverage in there, but when we did get the few storms that we got, the skiing was really good, um, really good. So you're, you know, this season was, as you mentioned, a little bit of a tough one. You're no stranger to New England weather, New England vagaries, and and just the the wild kind of swings we'll have throughout a season. As I mentioned, several decades of Mount Snow. Did you grow up in New England? Is this where you're from? So yeah, I am. I grew up in a little town called Hinsdale, New Hampshire. And it is the southwest corner of the state. You can drive two minutes and be in uh, Massachusetts and two minutes oh, wow. or three minutes and be in Vermont. <laughs> so what was your local? Where'd you ski growing up? Um, I didn't ski when I was growing up. My mom took me to uh, Maple Valley, which is in uh, off of Route 30 and just north of Brattleboro, Vermont. And um, my first experience was a day with my mom and my cousin and I got dragged up the rope toe all day long and took my skis off and threw them at my mother and said, I'll never do this again. <laughs> was your mom trying it for the first time as well? No, my mom and dad, they were, they were not, they were not skiers. Um, my dad was a worker. He, uh, he put a lot of time into, into his job. Um, my mom took made make sure we were behaving and, um, their big ski trip. Um, they did ski a little bit. Their big treat ski trip was to stow. Oh man. Back in the, 50s they got all the way up there and, and they forgot their their ski boots so uh oh no that was their ski career <laughs> did they rent some or did they just say uh oh, we'll go to the bar nope they went to the bar 
<laughs> not a bad option. No. So, so you, you know, you're frustrated. You, you throw the skis off the top of the rope toe. Yeah. So what happened from there? Did, did you, did, did you take a break? Did you just have a change of heart? How, how did you get I into did. skiing? I took a, I took a break. I started up skiing again in, in high school. A couple of my buddies were, were skiing and it was kind of the thing to do then. So my first real experience was, was actually at Mount Snow. We'd go over to Memorial Park in Bravero, which is a little T-bar and kind of bomb around there for a little bit when I was, you know, 16, 17. But, you know, the treat was to go to Mount Snow. And that's kind of how I got back into it. So how did you, what was your first job in skiing? So my first job was actually teaching skiing at Mount Snow. So got out of school, um, went up to Mount Snow, originally was going to make snow, sat down with the with the snowmaking supervisor and listened to his spiel. And, and I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And then walked over to the ski school table and sat down with those guys. And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll give you a go. You go through a four day training clinic. And then um, if you pass that, we'll, we'll hire you. So the ski school director came up to me at the end of the four days, myself and my cousin and said, listen, we're going to hire both of you guys because you're full time, not because you can ski <laughs> and uh, we'll figure out your skiing. <laughs> so um, spent the first two years uh, working in the beginner program and uh, chasing the best guys around the hill and just got better. So take us through that. You, you're, you're working as a ski instructor, obviously you had a long career at Mount Snow. Take us from that first job up to your position as general manager. Well, okay. Uh, so I taught skiing in the wintertime and in the summertime I worked, uh, I had a summer job down at a, an oil company, Sandry Oil. So I, I split it until about two, 2001, I think. And during that time, I, I spent a year working in the Learn to Ski program. Then I spent two years running the Learn to Ski program. Then I spent some time as a technical director. Um, and then I got out of the ski school. And when Shape Skis came out, I worked with uh, Rosinal on their, their Cut 10-4 program. We had a guided demo program when American Skiing Company purchased us. So I got into that and, you know, we sold, we sold skis for the first year. And then the next two years I oversaw, you know, three, I think it was three locations. I oversaw Killington, Sugarbush and, and Mount Snow for American Skiing Company. And then that started to kind of taper down. The adult programs manager opened up at Mount Snow. So I, uh, I jumped back into the ski school, you know, and all that, that time as I was there, I, I got involved with PSIA, got certified, went over to a national academy. And um, through that whole process, getting through the ski school, I actually became an examiner with, with PSIA. So now I travel around and certify people teach skiing. So that was kind of my anchor, that whole ski school world. And when the opportunities came, I kind of moved a little bit, but I didn't, I didn't stray too far from my roots. That teaching industry is a, is a culture like nothing I've seen. And uh, the camaraderie is amazing. So what made you decide, Eric, finally to, because you were splitting summers and winters, Mount Snow in the winter, Sandry Oil in the summer. What made you say, okay, skiing is what I want to do. I want to work in this life year round. So I came into a crossroads where uh, a full-time year-round job opened up at uh, Mount Snow. Sandry had just brought on uh, two more golf courses. So it's an oil company that had 20, 125 gas stations that I kind of did computerized drafting for. I laid out for planning boards, zoning boards, and they had three golf courses. And the one that they had in Massachusetts, I spent quite a bit of time at uh, as a member. And then I helped in the junior program teaching and, and whatnot. So through my work as 
managing the guided demo programs at three properties, I put together a plan and I gave it to Mr. Sandry for uh, kind of doing the same type of deal for the three golf courses. And I kind of looked at both pieces and, you know, I really kind of came down to do I want to be traveling as much as that opportunity would have given me. And I, and I just decided that, you know, I want to be in the ski business and that's where I, I stepped in and, and took over uh, the ski school uh, along with the race department and childcare. And then in the summertime, I also had an 18 hole golf course and I actually took that over as well. So it, I kind of got both worlds. So you mentioned the the camaraderie of the ski school. Just talk about that culture a little bit and, and, and what makes that such a special thing to be a part of and, and, and how, how that sort of blossomed into this wanting to, to be even more immersed in that ski resort experience. Well, it's, it's like hanging out with your brother all the time. You know, obviously there's, there's going to be good times and bad times and, and everybody pushes each other to get better. That's what was, was really cool. I came, you know, from a, from a team background coaching soccer for a bunch of years. And that's kind of the, the pinnacle for me where, you know, I know that I can pick up the phone and call a good buddy of mine and he's going to come and go skiing with me and we're going to kind of push each other and talk about strategies and talk about, you know, what's going on in the industry and talk about what we're doing skiing and, and joke around and have a couple beers and bust each other's chops. It's it, you become that, that family and that culture and people as, as your staff start to see that they just start to kind of morph into this big family. So, so talk about how you ended up taking the general manager job and, and how you were able to, to kind of, or, or if you were able to translate that kind of ski school camaraderie and, 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 and team atmosphere into an entire resort the size of Mount Snow. Wow. Um, so Mount Snow job became available when um, Kelly Pollock left. She took a job as the CEO of NSA. Um, which is an awesome opportunity for her, which opened the door for me. I had spent some time with Tim and Jesse Boyd kind of working through actually the entire entire company. I managed the retail for uh, Olive Peak, which was 17 locations. So they knew that I was pretty well versed in, in taking on some large projects. And uh, Jesse and, and Tim came up to me and asked me if I was interested in taking them out snow GM's position. I said, absolutely. So that's kind of what got me in there. And I had I had been there for a while. So people, people in the resort knew me. I I didn't just spend time in ski school. I spent time, you know, with the groomers and over in the park guys and dealing with some of the lift maintenance guys and, and lift ops. And it, when you're in that, in that role that I was in as director of skiing services at the time, I had a lot of interaction with the other managers. So a lot of those guys uh, knew me and knew how I operated. And as far as a team team goes, that's, that's what Mount, Mount Snow is. We all work hard together. And that's a culture that's been there since I've been there. It's been, it's, it's, it's different. It's, it's hard. It's hard to kind of describe it. You know, you, you mentioned Kelly Pollack, who is now CEO of NSAA and, and I've interviewed her on in the podcast and I've hosted Greg Fisher as well, who's doing great as a general manager out there at Granite Peak in Wisconsin. And that Mount Snow of that era, for whatever reason, just seemed to generate a lot of industry talent, a lot of really smart, passionate people. What was it, Eric, about Mount Snow that that produced leaders in the industry and, and these folks that just went on to be able to run other organizations in, in a really, really great way? Well, 
one of the things is we were all close knit. I mean, we had the X Games there, and I think it was 2001. Everybody pitched in. It didn't matter what what your title was or what you did. Uh, if we were we were taking out the trash or moving sets around or shoveling people here and there, that was the that was the thing that was really cool. Is we we didn't care. I mean, Greg Fisher is a very close personal friend of mine. He needs something. I'd go help him. And and that's where, at a resort level, it's important not to be siloed. Where hey, I'm in ski school. This is what I do. I'm not going to go help the food and beverage guy. You know, I'm in food and beverage. I'm not going to go help the ski school guy. And that that was what was cool about American Skiing Company. They broke down the, the silos. It was it was really neat. And we had some good times. I mean, we we were there seven days a week. Didn't matter. Whatever you needed, we went we went and did it. That was the mentality of, of that, that whole management style. It's just like, you know, we're in this together. We're going to be really busy for about five months. Let's do a really good job. And, and that, that was kind of the goal. So, so give us a little history lesson here, Eric, because you had a front row seat and you were there as Mount Snow transitioned over the years. And it's always been a kind of unique, interesting place. But it, it really was one of the first Northeast resorts to – really modernize and really build out this super powerful snowmaking plant that they have today under Peak Resorts. So just talk about Mount Snow when you first arrived in the 1980s and then what it looked like when you left just from an infrastructure point of view. Whoa, infrastructure. It was it was struggling. When I first got there, you know, it was it was coming off of the Walter Shunkanunk. I don't know if I said that right, but uh, you know, he had this grand vision of outside pools and indoor skating rinks and that that infrastructure was there and it was slowly starting to deteriorate. SKI at that point had us in, um, then that was, I think that was Killington, Sugarbush and a couple others and things were okay. But when American Skiing Company kind of came and got us, that's when things started to change and not a ton on the infrastructure, but just in the, the thought process. And we had a CapEx budget of about 2 million bucks every year to kind of put back in. And for that place after the late 80s, early 90s, it, it needed it needed a little bit more love. And that's where it was tough to kind of, when you get in that multi-resort property, you have to kind of take a hard look at where's the best bang for your buck. And so as we transitioned through into, into peak resorts, same thing. But Tim and, and Jesse and Dick Deutsch, those guys had a, a vision of where we wanted to get to. Tim came in there and, and the, the first year, I think he put in 251 fan guns and that was, that changed the change the landscape for us. We could now put out a good product. And I can remember Tim Boyd saying, you know, if, if you have good snow, people will come. And um, we saw that immensely. Once we got got that going, we said, listen, we need a little bit more water. And we had been trying to pull water out of Somerset Reservoir for I don't know how long, back at least when SKI was there. We could never get past the regulations, the permit process, environmental groups. So we had a uh, piece of property down towards Wilmington and um Tim's like, let's build it down there and it's, you know, three miles away. And and it was a unbelievable project that uh Tim and Jesse and Dick and uh Brendan Ryan was a focal point of getting that system built. And uh, you know, it was a it was a large investment. And once that came online, there was it was no stopping us. I mean we had a bunch of water, had a bunch of fan guns, we had a bunch of air. Um, we had buried feed lines where we could be extremely efficient in making snow and, from a cost standpoint. And that put us on the map, I think. Just talk about that process. I mean, three miles, that's a long way to move water 
when you're talking about the volume of water you need for snowmaking. So just talk about the process of, of building that system and just getting the right away and getting that online. Oh, that we had a, we had a very good company that helped us do all the permitting. It was time spent with local uh, planning boards and zoning boards and some landowners and getting right aways. And it was a, it was a process, it, you know, it took us, you know, three, four years to kind of get that through. And then designing the pumping system, Brendan Ryan did that for us with Torrent. And uh, we pump from the, the pond up to a, another pumping station at Corinthia. And then we have another pump house called Roy. That how That's how it moves the water around the resort. And we can isolate things that we can put more water on the main phase versus Corinthia. We can, we have another holding pond called Corinthia Pond and we can utilize water from there without a lot of pumping because it's, it's up on the hill a little bit. So there was a whole bunch of ways that they created that vision of, of energy savings because that's your biggest expense at a resort. Yeah. And that thing, once it came online, Eric, that full snowmaking system, I remember Mount Snow in 2018 opening in October. And that was a shocking mm-hmm. thing because for listeners who aren't familiar, I mean, this is Southern Vermont we're talking about. This is not Killington, which by the way, when they open in October, they do it at the very top of their mountain. Yep. Okay. That top 500 feet out of 4,000. And it's not, you know, Jay Peak or Stowe. This is, the, the climate is is pretty different depending on where you are in Vermont. So just, just talk about how big of an investment that was and, and how incredible of an achievement it was to be able to open that mountain in that place in October. Well, it, you know, the investment was about 30 million bucks. And then we hit the weather temperatures right. Fan guns, you can produce snow at a little higher wet bulb than air water. That was the advantage of putting the fans in. You know, Tim and Jesse have been doing that out in the Midwest for, for quite some time. And they saw they saw the value in that. And that's how we got it open. We didn't use a t- traditional air water gun where it has to be a little lower wet bulb than working on a fan gun. So that's that's how we accomplished that. And we had some really good windows that year in, in October. And we just went to town and decided to pull it off. So you have this tens of millions of dollars invested in, in Mount Snow. Its peak has set it as its flagship resort. It leads the whole portfolio. And, and it really looks like the whole thing has a really bright future. And then... In July 2019, although I'm sure you knew about this deal much far in advance of the rest of us, in July 2019, Vail Resorts announces that it is buying Mount Snow along with the other 16 peak resorts. What was your reaction, Eric, when you heard this news? Um, I didn't know as far in advance as you think. (laughs) We all kind of found out out about it around the same time. It might have been a day before. We did have a little bit of a a little bit of advance notice. Um, I was shocked. I was shocked. We spent a ton of time, you know, from 2007 when they came in there, putting that together and building it up. And we were super proud. And, you know, it's always in the back of your mind that something might happen. Vail kind of went on a purchasing spree there. And, and I was like, to myself, I'm like, we're too big. They aren't going to buy us. And then um, all of a sudden, bam, here we go. But it was, a, it was a, the right acquisition for them. Um, we had a bunch of feeder resorts. Uh, we had uh, us and, and Hunter, um, two pretty large properties that, that did a bunch of revenue. So it kind of fit in, in what they were doing. It was a little shocking, but um, you know, it makes you even prouder of, of what, you, what you put together and what you did there. So you worked for a year under Vail as the head of Mount Snow. And, and again, you have really interesting perspective here, Eric, because you worked under S- SKI in the 80s. You worked under American Skiing Company. You worked under Peak Resorts. I mean, this is basically mm. a living ski museum that you transitioned <laughs> through. 
And then you had a year under Vail. So, so how did that year go? And and how did it go in in comparison to the other several decades you'd had at Mount Snow? Um, it was a little different. You know, Vail is their structure is very centralized. Um, where Peak was not. We were a little bit of a hybrid where Tim could walk in my office at any point and sit down and have a conversation and say, this is what we want to do. This is where we're going to go. So you kind of got that through the horse's mouth where at Vela, the decisions were more from Broomfield, so to speak, and kind of passed down where Tim and Jesse and Dick would say, what do you think? What do you want to do? What makes sense? Um, you were a little bit more involved, you know, and, and, I, and I think Vale has, has a lot of smart people in Broomfield and they're working to kind of get into that Eastern market and they're going to figure it out. But it was, it was different. And then you go into American Scheme Company back in, in that time and it was uh, a little bit more centralized, but again, still they were asking for some input. Um, I can remember when we were switching uh, ski schools over and we went to perfect turn and I sat in a meeting for three days and just didn't get the concept. And on day three, I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. I get it. You know, cause the whole process was, you were going to work on a strength in the in teaching as opposed to being corrective, and it was enhancing that strength that made it better. But it would it took me like three days to understand where they were going, and I was like. And then when you got into back down at SKI, that was individualized. It was you know Mount Snow. We didn't see any of the of the corporate guys. They saw it at the at the top level, so it was a little bit more at the resort level for SKI, but um you get back to that Mount Snow piece and, and going into, uh, into Vail, it, it was different. You know, I was included. They brought me into a, a couple of different planning meetings just to kind of get to know the teams and, and whatnot and continue to move forward. But it's a, it's a different approach than what Peak had. Vail's also come into the Northeast in an interesting way and at an interesting time. So that first season, I'll point out, was the shortened season because of COVID. So, yep. you know, that ended in a surprising way for all of us, certainly. And they also bought a lot of resorts at once. And, and they had had Stowe was their first resort. And Stowe is a little unique yep. in that it gets so much more snow than most of the rest of the Northeast mm. being right there up on the spine in the upper Green Mountains. So, you know, you have Stowe, Jay, Smuggler's Knot, Sugarbush, Mad River. They get a lot more snow than the rest. So, so Vail, their, their first entry into the Northeast was, was a little deceiving, I think. And, and it seems like they were caught off guard with the rest of peak resorts and they, they've struggled for the seasons that followed to fully open their mountains, especially in New Hampshire and crotchet cut back on hours this year. Wildcat and Natatash had a lot of lift struggles, failed to fully open just stepping back. And, and with now, four seasons behind us. Eric, do you think that Vail understands the Northeast? Um, I think they're getting there. It's tough to institutional knowledge in the East is, is important. And um, I think that as they, they start to develop a little bit more of, of their management team here, they're starting to understand it. It's like, it's like anything. When you get into a new business, you're going to run into some bumps in the road. And it was funny, uh, my CEO, uh, Vern Greco, he came from the Steamboat Park City area, and he did the same thing. He kind of came in here, thought he knew the ski business and East, and said, we're going to do this, and it didn't work. And um, <laughs> it, it's, those, it's those learning moments that um, – make you better and yeah you're gonna fail a little bit here and there it just 
Vail is a big ship, so it, it just takes a little bit of time to turn it around. And they'll get there. Um, like I said earlier, they got a bunch of smart people there. But yeah, it was it was a tough year this year. You know, we didn't have good weather for for snowmaking, and you had to you had to be right on it. And because the minute the temperatures turn, you, you got to be able to flip everything. And I think you know the pandemic and and the labor sh- market definitely hurt a lot of people. That had an impact on on whether or not you could get staff to get there and get the job done. So it was a tough year this year for anybody. I think uh, uh, smaller properties didn't get hurt by the the labor shortage as much as the bigger guys. Yeah, again, from the peanut gallery and just as an observer, from my point of view, Vail should, wherever they operate, be the best in the region. All their ski resorts should be the best. But frankly, Eric, they got their clock cleaned in New Hampshire this year. You look at Pat's Peak, and they were the first ones. It's a little little area, but they were the first ones in New England to be 100% open. Crotchet is right nearby, and they couldn't even run on a full schedule. Uh, you go up to North Conway, and, and Cranmore was doing great and fully open and fully staffed while Aditash struggled. Uh, Loon, which is a big place, was doing great and seemed fully staffed up and had tons of terrain open. And then, you know, your ski area ran on a normal schedule yeah. when when Vail was cutting back, having parking challenges, having lift and personnel. What what does Vail need to do to get up to the level of the regional operators that frankly kicked their butts this year? Well, it's nice for us to outshine Vail. It gives us a goal. Um, you know, like you said, they are the, the biggest in the, in the industry and the industry expects them to do it perfect all the time. And, and that's a challenging thing to live up to. But it gives us uh, smaller operators that like, you know, hey, yeah, you know, we got we're first open. We got 100 percent this. And so it kind of creates that competitiveness on what's going on. But, uh, yeah, they, they've, they've got some learning curves. It's a challenge and their infrastructure needs to change. You know, there was some staffing issues that I think they, they struggled with and, and didn't really realize what they what they had and what. Then when they lost it, they knew what they lost. But again, it's a giant company. And a lot of times you don't see the problem until it's too late. And that's the nice thing about being a small resort. You're on it all the time. And that has its advantages. All right. That's a perfect time to transition to Ragged. Because if you look back at Ragged's history, there's probably no better poster child for how complicated and challenging of an environment the Northeast is to operate in. So let's just talk about, let's start with Ragged's history. It's been through several ownership changes. It's been through a bunch of bankruptcies. And then Pacific Resorts Group bought Ragged Mountain about 15 years ago. Is there anything particularly challenging about running Ragged Mountain, Eric, from your point of view? Or was it just a matter of getting in the right operator that was willing to commit the right resources to it? Um, no, Ragged has some challenges. You know, they, they spent some money and got a pumping station and built a snowmaking pond. That's helped. Um, the snowmaking system is not what I'm currently used to. I was always used to, uh, you know, we had a whole bunch of fan guns. We could resurface. We didn't bury trails. Our, our philosophy is a little bit different here where we bury a trail and then instead of resurfacing it, we resurface it with, with the cats which I fought with my snowmaking manager and my grooming manager in the beginning of the season. I'm like, you do what? And they're like, yeah, this is how we do it. And I'm like, no way. And um, <laughs> we kept going around and around and around. And he's like, this is what we're going to do. And I'm like, you got it. Let's have at it. And by far, I think our snowmaking conditions over the year was better than everybody else. I had a bunch of people come down from all over uh, 
New Hampshire, I had some guys come over from Vermont and they could not get over how good the snow was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a chance to travel around a little bit in the same thing where the, the snow surface was way better than what everybody else was putting out. And again, smaller property, more attention to detail and, you know, caring about the product definitely takes you a long way. So that in itself is a challenge, snowmaking, getting water, because you're, you're setting up on a couple trails, then you're moving to another couple trails. And then, so it takes some labor to that. I've got two different peaks. So it's challenging to control costs on your lifts. I have to run all three lifts all the time. So that's a challenge. Get, you can't get from one peak to another. That's another challenge that we're scratching our head on. What's nice about it is it's family oriented. It's, it's small. It's manageable. You can manage it with a with not a huge crew, and everybody that's there is invested in the property, from the person that rings the register and food and beverage to the mountain manager to the ticket manager to the ticket people. Everybody loves to come to work there, and that's what's really cool, and that's what makes the little properties go a long way. It, so it sounds like you inherited a really great team there, Eric, and. And I think that's really the dream of any manager when you come in a new situation, right? Is that you you get people who are bought in. Do you think that that helped you with staffing in this year when so many other ski areas in the Northeast and all over America struggled to staff up fully? Oh, 100%. 100%. Those guys, those guys are tuned into the, into the communities around. They've been there for a while. They know what it takes to get the job done. There's no beating around the bush. And and when we're short someplace, everybody jumps in to help out. I inherited an unbelievable staff. When you look at a resort, it's not me. It's not Pacific Group. It's the people that grind it out day and day, doing the hard work for you. And you're just there to support whatever they need. And Vail recently announced that it is raising its minimum wage to $20 an hour around the country, which hopefully will help it staff up a little more in New Hampshire. Is that presenting challenges for you? How are you going to respond to that? Um, we're talking about that right now. Um, we're not sure what we're going to, what we're going to do. It's like, it's like anything like McDonald's, you know, they go, they went to 15 or 18 bucks an hour here a few years back. And when you look at the market, it's money isn't always the problem when you get right down to it. You know, what's the work environment like? What's the, you know, is the person passionate about the job? There's a lot of people that are in the, in the ski business, not for the paycheck. Not to say that that's not important, but yeah, we're looking at that and it's definitely created an opportunity. You know, Aspen, I think went a week before those guys. And then, you know, when Vail went, that went across all of their properties. So it's, it's definitely something that everybody's looking at. So let's talk about Pacific Resorts Group a little bit here, Eric. It's it's a little ski conglomerate, as I mentioned in the intro. They own five ski areas across North America. I think this is one that most skiers are not really aware of in the way they may be aware of Vail or Altera or Boyne. So talk about Pacific Resorts Group and the, the five different ski areas that it owns around the country. Okay. So obviously we've got Ragged in, in Danbury, New Hampshire. We've got... Uh, um, Wintergreen in Virginia, which is a smaller resort. Then we've got Wisp in Maryland, and then Powderhorn in Grand Junction, Colorado, and then we have Mount Washington in Vancouver Island, Canada. And they're all about the well, I shouldn't say same size. We've got Powderhorn and, and Ragged are probably the most comparable, and then Wisp and and Wintergreen are in some dense populations and then Mount Washington is out on an island. So it has, it has a captive audience, not giant resorts, but do a great, great job in the little things for the guests. And that's, 
that's the difference between, you know, the big, big players and the, and the Pat's Peaks and the Raggeds of the world is we can tend to our guests in a little bit more personalized manner than the larger resorts because they get so many. So it's diverse. It's across the country, insulates you a little bit from a bad season in the West can, and a good season in the East can kind of help, but we're run separately. I run ragged and I talk to some of the GMs every once in a while. I have a good relationship with Ron Hawks down at, at Wisp. Um, obviously Jay Gamble. I'm working, starting to work with the other guys out West. It's a little different than what I'm used to with, as far as what Peak and American Skiing Company and, and obviously Vail. They were a little different. It was a little more centralized. But I deal with uh, Vern Greco and Mark Fisher uh, weekly. And then Christian Knapp, our CMO, you know, we're on the phone all the time. So they've got a good pulse on on what we're doing and, and what's happening. It's kind of a conglomerate, but it's not. It, it still feels like home. So it sounds like their role, Eric, is really to support you, give you the resources you need. Yep. And your job is to tell them what you need. So, yep. so just talk a little bit about what, what Pacific Resorts may be giving Ragged that they hadn't historically had. Because like I said, this is a mountain that they've been through a couple of bankruptcies. Really, for a while, it looked like it may be a lost ski area, but mm. it seems to be doing really great now. Um, yeah, we've, you know, we've kind of turned the corner and, and we've been profitable the last couple of years. It's it's not easy to make money at a ski resort. Um, and then when you're not making money at a ski resort, you, you can't put money back into it to fix it. So it's it's challenging. Like I said, we've kind of turned it around here the last couple of years with Jay at the helm and then uh, Ryan. We've we've seen some improvements. And it's it's little things. I said Mount Snow's CapEx was like $2 million bucks. Um, Ours is not even close to that. And we're working off some maintenance stuff. When you go and, and do... Uh, lifts. You get a 20,000 hour service for your gearbox. That's that's $100,000. That burns up your CapEx pretty quickly. So trying to find the right things to target where you can increase your revenue a little bit definitely helps the cause for the next year. And um, PGRI and, has been super supportive in, in making sure we get the dollars in the right place and have the right effect so we can potentially make a little bit more money the next year and allow us to put some more money back into the property. And that's kind of that cycle. If you don't you don't have a great year, it's tough to put money back in. So as you look at the future, Eric, I think that the project that most skiers are most curious about and most anxious to hear an update on is Pinnacle Peak, which is a big pot of trails, lookers left of the current terrain. And for a while, for several years, this was marked on the trail map as future expansion. And I'll include those maps on the article that accompanies this podcast at stormskiing.com. But if you if you look at Google Maps, those trails have been cut and it looks like, you know, it's just waiting for a lift. So what's the story behind the Pinnacle Peak expansion? Will this ever happen? Is there a plan for it? Um, well, there's there's a plan. When it when it will happen, we don't have a firm timeline on that. Again, when you when you look at doing an expansion, there's a bunch of costs there. You look at a new lift, it's five million dollars if you're gonna put a high speed lift over there. It goes back to how you're doing profitability wise. Obviously, if you don't make that much money, it's it's challenging to put that in because now you've got to take out a loan. So there's there's some factors that are are definitely uh in play, but again, it's it's something that's um not off the off the table because they they have put some some money in there but there's no timeline on when when that's going to kind of get done but it's been in place for a few years and it is kind of what it is there do you know what what derailed that project eric was it covid because it seems like most of the time once a scary gets to the point where they're cutting trails they're they're pretty much in it so do you know why they started and then stopped um that that i don't i don't know um you know just coming in here in october 
I haven't kind of got into the, the depths of that, but um, can't comment on that one. What, what kind of terrain is over there as far as grades? It's similar to uh, the ragged side where it's kind of intermediate, uh, not super steep, kind of some long cruisers, kind of some decent glades to kind of go back and forth. And, and has the resort thought about, do you, have you seen the old plans? Do you know what kind of lift they had in mind to go in over there? Yeah, that I haven't, I haven't seen. I'm not sure what was going to go in over there. So the old maps also, Eric, showed some potential terrain development, Looker's right, of the current Spear Mountain terrain, which is a little bit smaller mountain there. Tell us about the terrain over there and if we could ever see that developed. I don't believe they actually cut trails over there, but correct me if I'm wrong. No, we haven't cut any trails over there, but um, we have thinned some stuff out for glades. That's some decent skiing in there. And again, that's one of the things that we talk about all the time is, you know, how can we increase our trail count? Adding that in and and clear-cutting trails, there's there's a whole permit process to go with that. We haven't kind of dove into that. I have been talking with my mountain manager about what makes sense and what can we do to increase that over there. But right now, we've just got glades. Um, There's nothing really on the forefront for that. So that was uh, really the, the potential terrain they showed over there. That was a really long lift line, just a couple trails. And it's right there, skiers left of Turnpike, which is a green trail. Was that meant to be a big beginner's area? Was that the, the notion there? Well, I think you're, we're talking about going down to the bottom of the golf course. That was part of that expansion piece that I don't have a lot of detail on. I think it came down from the old golf course, hole seven, and went up to the jug handle on uh, Cardigan. So I, I don't have a, a good background on on that piece, but I know there were some trails that were scheduled to be in there, similar to the Pinnacle Peak side. But again, we don't have a timeline on that, whether or not it's going to kind of work out or not. So previous owners owned as much as 2,000 acres surrounding Ragged, including the current ski trails. How much land does Pacific Resorts own and how much of that could be developed for skiing? That's a great question. I don't have the answer on that. We haven't got into that development side yet. So I, I don't know off the top of my head. So so getting from the hypothetical into the tangible, Ragged has actually a really amazing lift fleet, especially for a small mountain. And I think a lot of folks are aware of this. So lay out your current lift fleet for us, Eric. So we've got a high-speed detached six-pack, and then we've got a high-speed detached quad. One go, uh, The six-packs goes to the top of the Ragged, and the quad goes to the top of Spear. And then we've got a, uh, a triple down on a barnyard on our learning area, and we've got two carpets, and that's it. It's it's nice. It's super manageable. Coming from Mount Snow, we had, I think we had 17 aerial lifts. That's a wow. lot to keep going. So that six-pack's got to be nice, and it covers a lot of trails over there on Ragged Mountain. Up until a few years ago, there was a redundant double chair that went partway up Village Green. Do you have a sense of why Ragged removed that lift, and, and if we would ever see another redundant lift in that area? Um, I'm not quite sure why they removed that lift. Redundancy is definitely something that is planned for. When we get icing and and camera on the six-pack, we're basically down. I'm not sure if we'll see a a redundant lift there. Our uphill capacity is, for what we have, is pretty good. So the only thing that's really going to stop us is weather. Uh, The bonus on the six-pack is that the chairs are a little heavier, so it tends to run in bad weather. Like I said, weather is the only thing that's really going to take us down if it's icing. And then if it's really icing, are people really going to be out there skiing? Nah, maybe, maybe not. So is that something you've considered as another lift over there on Ragged Mountain? Oh, I think we always talk about kind of having redundancies, but I don't, I don't believe that's on the plans right now. It's always in, in the back of the minds, you know, how, how can we make things better and smoother? And, and our six pack went down the beginning of the year and we were down for four days and couldn't ski. So we're talking about trying to get 
snow over on Sphere a little earlier, so we can, if one left, have an issue with one lift, we can run the other lift and still have skiing. So we're always kind of talking about that and, and what makes sense uh, for us. Is there an opportunity, Eric, maybe for a surface lift? And, and I'm looking particularly here at Wildside, which is your park. And some resorts I've seen have been putting in surface lifts to serve their park to separate that group and just let the kids lap the park and, and take a little bit of pressure off the main lift. Is that something you've considered? Not that I know of. It, it would, I think a T-bar would service that a little bit better than a carpet. It's a little, it's a little steep for that. Um, and again, the carpet, uh, we wouldn't be able to put a carpet in there because it's too long. So I mentioned earlier, we talked about Ragged's Glade Network and it has a really, really extensive Glade Network and was really ahead of the curb. If you go back for decades, Ragged has had Glades on its trail maps going all the way back to the 1960s. And these really didn't become mainstream in the east outside of a few areas like Jay Peak, really until the mid 90s and later. So just talk about that terrain element of Ragged Mountain and, and how that sets you apart from your competitors in New Hampshire. Well, it gives you it gives you a variety. It also makes better skiers. You know, skiing on groomed stuff all the time is pretty easy. But when you get into the backwoods and having to pay attention a lot more than than you typically do on a groomer, it produces some really good skiers. And that that's what's neat. The crowd at Ragged can definitely uh, definitely ski. And it, it's another added amenity. You know, when the snow is good out in there and, and skiing in the trees, it's uh, euphoric. So you mentioned earlier that you were looking for opportunities to expand your trail network within the existing mountain footprint. Uh, are you going to continue to expand the Glade network? And if so, where could we expect to see this in the future? Um, we don't have anything uh, set in stone. Again, we typically go out and uh, uh, we do. We have a brushback program where we clean up what we have. That's kind of where we're at right now as far as our gladed trails. We don't have plans currently to add any new ones, but we're always always looking at that opportunity. How about night skiing, Eric? New, Southern New Hampshire is a little bit of a night skiing hotspot as far as New England goes, which which New England in general doesn't have the the night skiing culture that you might find in, in the Midwest, for example, especially upper New England, but uh, Pat's Beat, Crotchet, Gunstock all have extensive night skiing operations. Is this something that you've considered at Ragged or do you, or that you think would be a good fit at Ragged? Um, I'm not sure it'd be a good fit at Ragged. Uh, we don't have a dense population around us like uh, the other resorts do. It's challenging to do night skiing. So yeah, I think that the population definitely has a big factor on our decision. We've, we've talked about it, but um, we haven't gone any further than just talking about it. So let's, let's get into your snowmaking system here a little bit. You mentioned earlier that at your current system, you kind of have to alternate trails and you have a lot of mobile guns. Hmm. Have, is there an opportunity in the future to put more stationary guns in place? Ha, have you thought about what you want to do to evolve ragged snowmaking system in the future? Yeah, we've, we've talked about adding some more uh, low E guns. Again, it comes down it comes down to the dollars and cents. Um, it's nice that uh, New Hampshire energy efficiency is back online, so we can get some rebates to help become more efficient in our with our energy use in the snowmaking world. Right now, we have an automated system that runs down uh, exhibition, which uh, does a nice job for us. We're working on some piping that'll help us become more efficient with that, where we can use reuse some water. We've got nine fan guns right now that help us on village green. But when you kind of, after my first year there, I'm not sure that I'd really want to um, change how we tackle things. That was one of the things that we got into, into February and got out of the snowmaking season. 
And um, I had a long com- I had a conversation with my mountain ops manager, Alan uh, Wickstrom, and said, "He did a great job. This is not what I'm used to." And and I was blown away with the with the snow surface and and what we produced and how well and efficient we produced it. Having some more fixed assets will help on the labor side. Um, we're always looking to kind of get that uh, in place. Um, currently, we don't have our we don't have an air center, so we're air water system. Um, so we rent compressors. So that might be something that we look at changing that up uh, and maybe doing uh, some compressors. But again, it's a huge expense. You got to kind of weigh it out. Um, I think that would probably be a starting point. You guys have a good water supply there. Yeah, we have pretty decent water supply. We have a we have a snow snowmaking pond right at the bottom. Um, and then we can uh, recharge out of the bog. Um, obviously, there's some state regulations, but uh, we have a pumping station from the bog up to the uh, snowmaking pond. We're pretty good with, with water and uh, reclaiming. So what do you have in mind for CapEx heading into 2022 to 23? Is it too early to say what skiers we'll see next season at Ragged? It's it's a little early. We've, we've kind of submitted some things. Um, we've got some maintenance we've got to do on the six-pack. We've got a little maintenance we've got to do on the barn on the barnyard, so that's chewing up quite a bit of money. We've got a couple things in mind. Nothing's really sexy because you you need to definitely kind of continue your maintenance route. And and um, I think we've had a decent year, so we might see a, a couple of renovations to make us more efficient. Do a little kitchen renovation upstairs and uh, a stone hearth. But again, it's it's a little early. We really kind of gotta kind of map out what makes what makes sense for us um, right now. All right, Eric, let's wrap up today with a talk about your tickets and passes there at Ragged. The, let's start with the Mission Affordable Pass, which is really cool. And this is something that Pacific Resorts has at all of its ski areas. And this is, frankly, one of the best deals in New England for a mountain of Ragged size. The early bird price this year was $379. It is $479 from now until September 5th. Talk about the Mission Affordable Pass and why Ragged and Pacific Resorts Groups offer this highly discounted product. Um, it's about getting people into the sport. And when you when you look at that Seasons Pass, you're trying to find that committed value customer. And putting out a good price and a great product definitely gets them to come back. And again, for the size of Ragged, it fits us. We have uh, we have enough pass holders to keep us busy, and which allows us to bring in some paid tickets. So it's it's a good fit across the portfolio. Also, because you know we're a little on the smaller side, we're not that big conglomerate. We can be a little bit more efficient and nimble in how we we move. So it's been a great product and a great program. And you know, skiing needs to be affordable. When you think back in the days when we started to learn to ski, it was not super expensive. And Ragged is a family oriented resort along with Wisp and Wintergreen and and Mount Washington and Powderhorn. There's there's small properties that you want to make sure that it's affordable for the people to come and enjoy the sport. So those passes, the Ragged Mountain passes are good at those other resorts you just mentioned, Wisp Wintergreen, Powderhorn, Mount Washington. There's some restrictions, but yep. nonetheless, your pass holders could theoretically travel. Yep. Uh, do you see a lot of that? And do you see pass holders from these other resorts visiting Ragged? So I saw a few of our folks have gone down on the East Coast and a couple have gone out to Powderhorn. I don't, I'm not sure about um, at Washington, but we see people from Wisp and Wintergreen quite frequently. Um, they'll come up and, and ski with us for a couple of days and then head back down. Um, just because the, you know, the, it's, the, the weather down there is as volatile as, as it is up here. Um, even more so down there. Um, so we saw some folks come up here 
uh, mid January because it was we had they had that warm up um, and had to shut down for a couple of days. I know you're new to the resort, but have you had a chance to travel to any of the other Pacific resorts groups, Garius? I have not yet. I have not. Looking forward to that opportunity. Yeah, Powderhorn looks really cool. And and like you said, the resorts are all managed individually. And Powderhorn, in addition to this, um, into having its own Mission Affordable Pass, which is the same price, it has a bunch of reciprocal arrangements mm-hmm. with other mid-sized independent resorts like Sunlight Colorado and Loveland and Monarch and Ski Cooper and Red River, New Mexico. And basically these deals say that a pass holder from Powderhorn can go there and get some free lift tickets and pass holders from those resorts can come to Powderhorn and get some free lift tickets. Now Powderhorn's in a much different environment. Colorado mm-hmm. is a special competitive place where uh, the, the, the independents kind of banded together to offer these things over the past couple of decades as the Epic and Icon and others in Mountain Collective and other passes have, have caught on. Now, we're starting to see these a little more in the Northeast. Have you talked about or thought about doing any of these kind of arrangements at Ragged, either with local resorts there in New England or with some of these partners that Powderhorn has established out in Colorado? Um, we're always looking at those types of, of products and passes and, and trying to make sure that it fits in our network and, and what makes uh, logical sense for us. Um, we haven't committed to anything yet, but we're always looking at those opportunities to make sure it, it fits for us and the partner that we're, we're trying to work with, but I'm um, nothing right on the horizon right now. And how about the indie pass, Eric? Have you considered that? We've talked about it. Christian Knapp, our, our new CMO and myself and Byrne and Mark Fisher have, have discussed it. And, and right now we, we haven't really come to a, a decision yet, but we're always looking at, at those opportunities to see what, what makes good sense for us. Do you think it would be all or nothing, all the Pacific resorts groups or, do you, do you see a situation where the ski areas make their own choice about whether to join or not? Uh, not sure on that one, to be honest with you. Could go either way. All right. Well, I'll be watching and waiting to see what you do. Uh, Eric, I thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Lots of really exciting stuff happening at Ragged. It's a really cool little Indy Mountain. So anyone who has not gotten up there yet, if you're in New England and you're tired of the crowds, this is a place to go. So thank you, Eric. I hope to get up and make a few turns with you this winter. Well, I'd love to. Thank you very much, Stuart. That's Eric Barnes, General Manager of Ragged Mountain, New Hampshire. That is such a cool little place. Really glad to see Pacific Resorts taking good care of it. Now, let's get some cash flowing into the joint so we can break open Pinnacle Peak. Thank you so much for that, Eric. Very pumped to have a guy with your kind of experience and perspective running that joint and thank you all for listening got a whole bunch of good pods coming your way over the next month or so indie pass founder doug fish real skiers founder jackson hogan the owners of paul bunyan ski area in wisconsin and then snow trails ohio general manager scott chrislett if you want to hear those the second they're live Email subscribers actually get those podcasts about two to three hours before they sync up to iTunes or Spotify. I have no idea why. That's just how the machine works. But if you want to hack the system, you'll want to get on the email list at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon.
The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.